Okay, well, uh, good evening everyone, and uh, welcome again to our series of public lectures questioning the independence of law. And a particular welcome to Professor Ken MacDonald, who's to talk this evening on independent prosecutors and democratic accountability. Uh, professor MacDonald is a visiting professor in the Department of Law, where we've been delighted to have him as a colleague and to be able shamelessly to exploit his enthusiasm for teaching. Um, as I know, having done some joint teaching with him, um, our students really benefit from his presence here within the department. But Professor MacDonald has uh, another life beyond the LSE. Uh, he's a practicing barrister, a member of Matrix Chambers, and was for five years the Director of Public Prosecutions. When he was appointed to this role in 2003, he was the first lawyer with a reputation as a practicing defense advocate to have taken up this role, even though, of course, he hasn't been the last. During his time as DPP, he was innovative in establishing a series of specialist divisions within the DPP, including the uh, Organised Crime Division and the Counter-Terrorism Division. And on the day he stood down as DPP, he was described in the Times as an exemplary figure, having already been knighted for his services to law in 2007. Two other facts before I hand over. In 2009, he became a trustee of Index on Censorship, which is the leading free speech advocacy group. So we can expect a frank lecture from him this evening. And as I learnt from a link on his Wikipedia page, yes, he does have an entire Wikipedia page devoted to him, he was described in the Chamber's Guide to the Legal Profession as adept at wielding the iron fist in the velvet glove. I hope we're in for an informative and challenging evening from him. Professor MacDonald. Um, thank you, thank you, Jill. As, as Jill said, I've been um, doing some teaching here at the LSE for the last year and have very much enjoyed it. I've got my final um, seminar next week when we're going to be looking at some aspects of sentencing policy uh, in England and Wales. But today I want to talk to you, this evening I want to talk to you about prosecutorial independence um, and how that links with the accountability of prosecutors, how those two concepts go hand in hand if they do. What is it that prosecutors need to be independent from and how far should their independence extend? And how does it square with accountability? What does it mean for prosecutors to be independent within the context of a, a parliamentary democracy? Now, I think these questions are particularly acute in England and Wales, which is my jurisdiction, was my jurisdiction as DPP. And this is for two reasons uh, in recent times. First of all, in recent years, we've had a number of very controversial criminal cases in which it's been widely alleged that political pressure has been brought to bear on prosecutorial decision-making, and there's been a good deal of public concern about that. Secondly, and, and I think this is very important, over the past few years we've pursued a deliberate policy in England and Wales of giving our prosecutors a broader and a deeper role in criminal justice. Put very bluntly, we've deliberately been making 
our prosecutors much more powerful uh, in all sorts of ways. I want to start by examining how that process took place and why it took place and what its implications are. I was a part of this and I myself was arguing very strongly that prosecutors had to be given additional powers, had to become more powerful. And they have done. They have become more powerful in quite significant ways. I think to look at the history of prosecutions uh, in this country, we have to acknowledge a particular singularity over very many years of the criminal justice system in England and Wales. And this singularity was the manner in which we set about prosecuting crime through our courts. And in this, we were markedly different from every other uh, common law jurisdiction bar New Zealand. And this singularity was, until just 24 years ago, we conducted the process of prosecuting crime without the intervention of a public prosecutor. We had no public prosecution service until 1986. Prior to the creation of the Office of Director of Public Prosecutions by the Prosecution of Offences Act of 1879, all prosecutions in England and Wales were undertaken either by private individuals or by the police. The new DPP set up in 1879 was a species of public prosecutor but his powers were limited to certain exceptionally serious or sensitive cases. For another hundred years, the vast majority of criminal prosecutions continued to be brought by the police. In our jurisdiction, there was no disinterested public authority empowered to conduct routine criminal prosecutions. This was, uh, as I've said, in international terms, a highly unusual uh, state of affairs, and I think it's fair to say it impacted adversely on the administration of justice for generations. By the early 1980s, a consensus had at last been reached that this wasn't appropriate. It wasn't appropriate for the police both to investigate and to prosecute crime. There needed to be separation. It, it began to be understood that the responsibility of the police for both, for investigation and, in effect, for decisions to prosecute, had resulted in a series of miscarriages of justice. These culminated in the Maxwell Confey case, in which uh, three entirely innocent young men were convicted on the basis of wholly false confessions of the killing of a male prostitute in South London. As a result of this case, a Royal Commission was set up. It was called the Phillips Commission to consider criminal procedure. And amongst other things, it concluded that there urgently needed to be separation between the investigative and the prosecutorial functions. It felt that the existence of an independent prosecutor would have represented a critical safeguard against a case like Confey ever resulting in a wrongful conviction. No doubt the Commission had in mind the supervisory function of a public prosecutor's relationship with the police. This was apparent in other jurisdictions, not just in civil law countries where the police often act under the explicit direction of prosecuting uh, authorities. So in 1985, another Prosecution of Offences Act set up the Crown Prosecution Service, our first state prosecutor, under the leadership of the Director of Public Prosecutions, and the DPP became responsible at a stroke for all criminal prosecutions in England and Wales. This potentially significant reform, however, was conducted in a very half-hearted way. And so in the end, it wasn't as significant as it might have been. In particular, the extent to which the new body was empowered to supervise the police at all was left deliberately vague. There had been a fierce debate about this inside the Commission and the minimalists, those who wanted less reform rather than more reform, 
one. This was for a number of reasons. The, the police were, broadly speaking, extremely hostile to the creation of this new body. They didn't want to lose power. They certainly didn't want to be supervised, and they had many supporters in the media. The bar, too, a powerful organization in Parliament, even more so then, feared that new state prosecutors might take work from barristers in private practice. They feared its power in the marketplace. And, of course, this was all happening under Mar Margaret Thatcher's government, where the creation of large new state bureaucracies was not exactly uh, in vogue. So for this and for other reasons, the CPS's original professional remit was set about as narrowly as it could be without making its new existence entirely pointless. Essentially, the role of the new state prosecutors was simply to receive files of evidence from cases investigated and still charged at the discretion of the police and to examine them in accordance with certain prosecution tests. If those tests appeared to be passed, more often than not, the case would be transferred to a barrister in independent practice to prosecute through the courts. But in spite of the modesty of the CPS's function, one government minister of the day going so far as to describe it as low-grade legal work, which is a good, good advertisement for recruitment, even the responsibility that the CPS was given for reviewing files and so for necessarily deciding that some cases didn't pass the test and would have to be discontinued was particularly unpopular with the police and with the press. CPS became known through its decisions to abandon certain cases as the criminal protection service rather than the Crown Prosecution Service. And this was an attitude, of course, as you will understand, which itself completely failed to understand the distinction between evidence sufficient to justify an arrest and evidence sufficient uh, to justify a prosecution, or the risk to justice and the dreadful waste associated with confusing the two. It also failed to acknowledge the critical discretion that prosecutors in our jurisdiction have always possessed to determine whether the prosecution of cases, even where the evidence is sufficient, is in the public interest to pursue. All this um, meant that this prosecution service had to be reformed, and it had to be reformed urgently. It had to assume new roles. It had to take over responsibility from investigators for all of those decisions which were properly decisions to be taken by lawyers rather than by policemen. And it had to new in move into new areas of practice, for example, advocacy, so that a career with it could tempt the best law graduates interested in crime to come and work uh, and to experience a satisfying career there. So there were three important stages in the reinvention of the CPS in the late 1990s and the turn of the century. The first came in the late 1990s when the present government, as it increased funding in other public services, increased funding in the CPS too. And this had an immediate impact. Uh, the CPS was able to raise its salaries and it began to compete more aggressively in the marketplace for talented lawyers. Around the same time, in 1998, and in the face of huge opposition from the bar in the House of Lords, CPS advocates were granted by statute rights of audience in the higher courts, and in time this became a development of enormous significance. Finally, around this time, the CPS's central role was revisited by statute, and this was due in large part to Sir Robin Old, then a distinguished uh, court, uh, 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 judge in the Court of Appeal, and to the then Attorney General, Lord Goldsmith. 
In 2000, uh, Lord Justice Old had been commissioned by the government to conduct a review of the criminal courts in England and Wales. The government was dissatisfied with what it saw as the inefficiency of the criminal court system. It believed, rightly in my view, that vested professional interests were blocking reform just as they were in the other great public services. Bluntly, not enough cases were being brought to justice. There was unacceptable attrition, that's to say cases collapsing before they got to trial, and proceedings took far too long. Sir Robin Old's proposals were radical, and some of them, to the regret of many, were not implemented, but others, designed to encourage joint working between criminal justice sectors, were taken up. The Criminal Procedure Rule Committee, the National Criminal Justice Board, and the local criminal justice boards are just some of the testaments to the wisdom of this astute uh, and cerebral jurist. But there was more, because deep in his review, in Chapter 10, lay these words. A strong and independent prosecutor, the Crown Prosecution Service has still to fill its proper role, which in my view should be closer to the more highly regarded procurator fiscal in Scotland. The prosecutor should take control of cases at the start, or where appropriate pre-charge stage, fix on the right charges from the start and keep to them assume a more direct role than at present on disclosure, and develop a more proactive role in shaping the case for trial, communicating appropriately and promptly with all concerned. For all this, the service needs greater legal powers, in particular the power to determine the initial charge and considerably more resources, in particular trained staff, uh, and more trained staff than it has had in the first disappointing 15 years of its life. Now this was very unexpected. Certainly by the CPS. It was also revolutionary because his simple proposal that prosecutors should take over from the police the right to decide whether someone should be charged with a criminal offence was going to completely recast the relationship between the police and prosecutors. It was going to completely revisit the settlement reached back in 1986. It was going to overturn the victory of the minimalists and essentially bring into existence by statute precisely that form of prosecutorial uh, body that the reformists had been arguing for. Peter Goldsmith lost no time in persuading the Home Secretary, then a forceful and powerful individual with responsibility for and a close relationship with the police, that this recommendation should be accepted, and it was. Decisions about which cases to prosecute need to be sound. This is an inescapable responsibility for the state. It must have in place sound processes guaranteeing fair investigations and sound charging decisions. People should not be charged in the absence of evidence sufficient to justify a charge. Every time somebody is charged with a criminal offence and finds himself or herself in a dock, he or she is at risk of conviction. So the first decision, the decision to charge, has to be sound. A prosecutor's role in charging makes it more likely that investigations will comply with the rules and that occasional abuses of police power will be avoided. Some civil libertarians feared the growth of prosecutorial power and feared the developing relationship with police and prosecutors on the basis that somehow this would be unfair to defendants. The opposite uh, is the truth. The involvement of prosecutors in this sort of work makes it less likely the state will bring cases which shouldn't be brought and which aren't justified by the evidence, and consequently efficiency and fairness is increased. Prosecutors, properly understood in my view, 
represent a bulwark against the miscarriages of justice rather than a threat uh, to justice. So with that um, brief summary of the development uh, of the CPS, I want to go on to explore some of the issues raised by this growing power. It seems reasonable to suggest as a starting point that the public would regard it as critical to this growth in power that prosecutors are seen to be independent, particularly of the police and of politicians. It seems unlikely from what one can discern that people in this country want politicised ju justice any more than they want prosecutors who simply act as tame advisers to police officers. And I expect we can all agree that we instinctively feel that decisions taken from a position of independence are more likely to deliver justice, uh, and that decisions that for, for whatever reason lack that characteristic risk miscarriages of justice. And yet there may be, in truth, a tension here between growing strength and developing independence. After all, it could easily be argued that the more powerful an organisation becomes, the more critical that the exercise of its powers should be supervised, even controlled. We're instinctively nervous, and rightly so, at the notion of unaccountable power. It seems clear that power that fails to account for itself will struggle to win public confidence, and that must be true of prosecutors, as it's true, for example, of police officers. In carrying out their functions, prosecutors must have the confidence of the public. This is a big part of what brings them authority, perhaps even legitimacy. As the police have long recognised, if the community has confidence that they represent and respond to community concerns, there's a greater willingness on the part of the public to play its part in the process, to assist the police. As an obvious example, in countries where the police are an instrument of state oppression or are perceived as a purely coercive force, they're less likely to be able to rely on the practical support of members of the public to assist them in carrying out their essential functions, including upholding the rule of law. The same principle, I think, applies to public prosecutors. Victims and witnesses are less likely to put themselves to the trouble of reporting crime, making statements and attending court if they're not confident that the prosecutor has taken into account their interests in the case. The problem is that the degree to which those interests, the interests of victims and witnesses, can be taken into account is an interesting uh, and not very easy to answer question. Because prosecutors also have to remain impartial, and this is an essential attribute of independence. Prosecutors do not represent the victims of crime in the way that defence lawyers represent their clients. Prosecutors have a much broader role than that. It is, for example, not really right to say that prosecutors even represent the public. We might more accurately characterise their role as representing the public interest, and this is not necessarily the same thing. For example, our society is hugely diverse, and that's one of its greatest strengths. But this also means that there are communities within communities which may have very different needs, desires, opinions and even morals. Where there's a, usually a shared interest across, while there's usually a shared interest across communities in being protected from violence or theft, there are also circumstances where the position of one group may conflict directly with that of another. For example, and, and, and we confronted this many, many times while I was DPP, an expression of free speech by one person may be considered threatening or offensive by somebody else. And I was often asked to prosecute people who had made offensive remarks on the radio or in newspapers 
um, in those sorts of circumstances. So there are obviously tensions between engaging with the community to win its confidence and maintaining an impartial and independent role. But what is accountability in that context? And to whom is the accountability owed by prosecutors? Well, obviously to the courts. But this is uncontroversial. Prosecutors obviously have duties to the courts, and they're bound by their rulings like anybody else. So we need to refine the question to make it a bit more interesting. What is the democratic accountability of prosecutors? Should they have any? What we're really asking about here, it seems to me, is what is the proper relationship between public prosecutors and the government? And that's really at the heart of what we're discussing tonight. Around the common law world, we see many very different models. In the United States, of course, district attorneys are usually elected. Doubtless, they see themselves as accountable in this way to the people through the ballot box. I was once visiting, the, when I was DPP, the district attorney in Brooklyn, in New York. I mentioned to one of his senior prosecutors that his staff treated him with great respect, perhaps more respect than my staff treated me. She looked at me rather surprised and she said, sure, three million people voted in that election. And so there's a, a form of accountability. In Washington, the United States Attorney General, a figure of great power, is not elected, but he or she is appointed directly by the president who is. More often than not, he or she is appointed from amongst the ranks of partisan political figures. He or she is a political ally of the president and becomes a prominent member of the president's cabinet. He has something of our Home Secretary about him, as well as discharging a law officer's functions. But a committee of the elected Senate must confirm the appointment before the Attorney General is allowed to take office. And the Attorney must submit to formal examination by elected lawmakers before he's permitted to enter that grand office in the Justice Department. And actually, this is a significant difference between our systems because that senatorial confirmation implies some bipartisan congressional approval for his appointment. It certainly means that the Attorney General is not entirely the creation of the executive branch, unlike ours, and that's an important distinction. In any event, Americans have no difficulty in accepting the right of the US Attorney General, even as a senior political government official, to make casework decisions in individual cases. He is, in essence, the chief U.S. prosecutor, and this is an essential part of his role. Prosecutions can be commenced or abandoned on his say-so. Of course, he's supposed to discharge his law officer role in an independent, non-partisan way, which reminds us of our own quaint theory that our Attorney General wears a number of hats and learns to exchange them with great ease. It's also worth reminding ourselves that George W. Bush's second Attorney General, Alberto Gonzalez, finally came to grief precisely because he was perceived to have behaved in a partisan fashion in dismissing numbers of U.S. attorneys, attorneys around the country who were Democratic appointees. And perhaps it was his apparent political closeness over very many years to George Bush that led many to treat with skepticism his claim that the individuals concerned were being removed on account of their, quote, limited efficiency, unquote. But his office was seriously damaged by this scandal, as indeed was the Justice Department itself. The US model is one that seems highly politicized to our eyes, and we're not comfortable with electioneering prosecutors touting campaign slogans. And this is perhaps why present Conservative Party proposals for elected police chiefs in England and Wales have not yet been accompanied by similar proposals for elected chief prosecutors. 
But it's surely possible to argue that it's precisely the US Attorney General's link to an elected president, secured by the approval of an elected Senate, that brings accountability to his office and an unobjectionable chain of democratic command. Or to argue that a community should be entitled to fire a prosecutor they believe is incompetent, or even just a prosecutor who's out of sympathy with the community's priorities or concerns. In other words, it's surely possible at least to argue the Americans have a criminal justice system that's not so much politicized as one that enjoys accountability to the public through its healthy control by, public, by figures the public have elected and are empowered to dismiss. Well, I hinted at one possible answer to this uh, a few moments ago when I drew a distinction between the public on the one hand and the public interest on the other as ultimate clients for a public prosecutor. Although it may seem merely archaic that prosecutions in our jurisdiction are brought in the name of the Queen rather than the name of the people or in the name of the government as they are in the USA, I think it's arguable that our formulation is actually more than a simple anachronism. It may indicate that for us there is something more enduring engaged in the business of state prosecution than the interests, views and feelings of a population happening to articulate those views and feelings at any particular time say at an election, and certainly something more fundamental than the views or interests of a government presently in power. So we would tend to say with confidence that justice transcends public opinion and that public interest, the public interest is not necessarily the same as what the public is interested in, still less what a majority may decide from time to time. We tend, I think, to the view that the subordination of justice to those forces, still worse, to the government interest would result in its polar opposite. It is, I think, in this sense, through their loyalty to the public interest, that we regard prosecutors as both retaining the space to make their own independent prosecutorial decisions while being required to have regard to something beyond their dry technical legal expertise. And this is why, under our system, every time a prosecution is brought, every time, the prosecutor must decide not only that there's sufficient evidence to bring the charge, but also that to bring it is in the public interest. And he or she is perfectly well empowered to exercise a discretion that although there's enough evidence, the prosecution will not be brought because it's not in the public interest. And this seems to me to be an important and appropriate form of accountability. Looking at some countries closer to home, the Scots have some significant elements of the American system. They have a Lord Advocate, until, uh, who, who's uh, not only the senior legal advisor, but also Scotland's chief prosecutor. Until devolution, all Lord Advocates were members of either the House of Commons or the House of Lords. With the passing of the Scotland Act, most domestic affairs were devolved to the new Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh. Under the settlement, the Lord Advocate became the senior legal advisor to the new Scottish Government, but she also heads the Crown Office and the Procurator Fiscal Service, which is the Public Prosecution Service for Scotland. So she is the chief public prosecutor for Scotland and remains so. She is uh, permitted to attend and speak at the Scottish Parliament ex officio, and from 1999 until 2007, the Lord Advocate attended the weekly Scottish Cabinet meetings, although Alex Salmond has put a stop to that, interestingly saying he wanted to depoliticize the post. Maybe the First Minister's decision was a sign of the times in Scotland, because in the Grishornish House Accord of 16th of September 2008, which was called to consider uh, the Lockerbie bombing trials and the implications for Scottish 
justice, the eminent professors Hans Kochler and Robert Black said this, it is inappropriate for the chief legal advisor to the government to be head of all criminal prosecutions. Whilst the Lord Advocate and the Solicitor General continue as public prosecutors, the principle of separation of powers seems compromised. The potential for a conflict of interest always exists. Resolution of these circumstances would entail an amendment of the provisions contained with the Scotland Act. The Scottish judges seemed to agree because the senior Scottish judges in a submission to a commission said this. The responsibilities of the Lord Advocate as public prosecutor could be transferred to an independent director of public prosecutions in Scotland who would be responsible for the prosecution system but who would not be a member of the Scottish Government. Such a change would rob the Lord Advocate of most of her functions but would lead the Scottish Government with the Lord Advocate who was a general legal adviser. This begs the question, what did those senior Scottish judges mean by independent? Did they mean, and this is a critical question for us in England and Wales, that the Lord Advocate would retain no right to direct the DPP in a given case? It sounds as though they might, and this would cast the new director as a powerful freestanding official with the power to determine for himself or herself the public interest. There is a successful precedent for such a system, a wholly independent, wholly independent freestanding DPP, again close to home, because this is precisely the situation in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, in the Republic of Ireland, the Prosecution of Offences Act for 1974, I think, set up the office of uh, Irish um, uh, DPP to transfer the Irish Attorney General's then responsibilities for prosecution to a, an independent figure. And the legislation mandate, mandated a strict and quite deliberate separation between politics and prosecution. The legislation is explicit that the DPP's independence means that he cannot be directed in his decision making by any member of the government. He is truly independent. The implication is that it falls to him finally to determine the public interest in all circumstances. So what of England and Wales? Here, the question of the separation of politics from prosecution, the relationship between the Attorney General and the DPP, has generated significant controversy in recent years. And this has been focused on the Attorney General's involvement in criminal casework decisions. In England and Wales, the Attorney General, Baroness Scotland, is the Chief Law Officer to the Crown and the Government's Senior Legal Advisor. She is also a Labour member of the House of Lords and a senior member of the Government but she is not the head of the prosecuting authority in the way that the Lord Advocate is in Scotland and the US Attorney General is in Washington. The Director of Public Prosecutions for England and Wales explicitly bears that responsibility under the Prosecution of Offences Act 1985. He, my successor Keir Starmer, is the head of the Crown Prosecution Service. However, under that same uh, legislation, the Attorney General superintends to lose, use the, the term in the legislation, the DPP. But what does this mean? What does the word superintend mean? Does it mean that the Attorney General may order a DPP either to prosecute or to abandon a case? Surprisingly, until very recently, there's been no clear answer to this. To be frank, Attorney Generals and DPPs have not always agreed on the definition of this interesting word. For my part, when I was DPP between 2003 and 2008, I was never able to concede that superintendents included a power to issue me with a casework direction. 
Since if that were the case, why should the legislation not simply speak of the DPP acting under the direction of the Attorney General? This would, after all, accurately describe the explicit position in the States and in Scotland. If that regime had been desired here, it could easily have been achieved. But what was undesirable, obviously, was that for there to be ambiguity about this. And certainly under Baroness Scotland's predecessor, Lord Goldsmith, there was a sense in some quarters that such an imprecise term, superintendence, might be capable of expanding in unforeseen and, frankly, undesirable ways. Lord Goldsmith's insistence, for example, that he wished to be consulted by prosecutors in the Cash for Honours investigation struck some commentators as unfortunate. As you'll remember, this was an inquiry into an allegation that the government may have, in effect, been selling peerages. This, if it occurred, could amount to a criminal offence. The atmosphere around the investigation was absolutely toxic, and it was politically highly charged. On two occasions, the police questioned the Prime Minister himself, and a senior number 10 official was arrested at her home and taken to a police station for questioning. So people asked how it could be right for a senior member of the government and a close political colleague of the Prime Minister, even in the person of the Attorney General, to have any role at all in the prosecution decision-making in that case. Could it be appropriate for him even to be consulted? The public didn't appear to be reassured by the notion that the Attorney wore many hats and could forswear politics when he was performing his duties as a law officer. Along with this was the dramatic decision by the serious fraud office to abandon its investigation into high-profile and politically explosive allegations that BAE had paid massive bribes to senior members of the Saudi royal family in order to win valuable defence contracts. Although the decision to end this investigation was made by Robert Wardle, then the SFO director, it was apparent that his move followed a letter from Prime Minister Tony Blair to his Attorney General and Lord Goldsmith's subsequent personal intervention with the SFO. Again, the imprecision of the relationship between the Attorney General and the Director of the SFO was creating an opaqueness that was hardly conducive to public confidence. So there was a clamour for change, and not only amongst constitutional lawyers. Indeed, like in Scotland, there was a very strong feeling that the role of the Attorney General, with its political, advisory, prosecutorial and quasi-judicial functions, was no longer fit for a modern world. It defended the most basic notion of the separation of powers. Many alternatives were canvassed. Some called for a new non-parliamentary Attorney General, a truly independent legal advisor, a distinguished lawyer perhaps in private practice, seconded for a fixed term. Others preferred a model in which the Attorney General was a member of Parliament, but not a member of the government. Most supporters of reform, however, were unanimous that the Attorney General should not routinely attend Cabinet, as Lord Goldsmith had, and that he or she should in any event withdraw from any casework role in prosecutions. He or she should no longer make decisions and should have no power to direct the DPP. In his first statement to the House of Commons as Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, who had replaced Peter Goldsmith with Patricia Scotland, seemed to give support to this desire for reform. He listed high amongst his priorities for constitutional change, removing the Attorney General from prosecution, casework, decision-making altogether. Tellingly, he characterised this as taking politics out of prosecutions. So we seem to be heading for the Irish model of independence and the model advanced by Professors Cockler and Black in Scotland. There followed a good deal of debate. Patricia Scotland emerged as a doughty defender of minimal change, 
Her analysis was that the government would be likely to be more trusting of advice coming from an in-house lawyer. She felt that a law officer who was a member of the government would have more credibility, more pull with ministers. She also felt that the Attorney-General's presence within the highest government circles was effective in encouraging respect amongst those in power for the rule of law. All that was probably true, although these were arguments going to her government advisory role rather than to any role in criminal casework. But she also felt strongly that the Attorney-General, as Chief Law Officer, should maintain a central role in safeguarding the public interest, public interest uh, uh, considerations in the criminal justice system. As we've seen, public interest is certainly a central component in the prosecution process, where it's an important driver in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion. In her view, this alone explained and justifying maintaining at least some role for government law officers in criminal casework. Now, these were powerful arguments very skillfully deployed, but there was another argument that resonated particularly strongly with some parliamentarians. And this was that the Attorney General, as a member of Parliament, and more specifically as a member of the government, and therefore directly answerable to Parliament, had an essential role in bringing some parliamentary, that's to say democratic, accountability to the business of prosecuting crime. And this argument went to the heart of the debate around the proper nature of the relationship between prosecutors and government. So we had a direct clash between those who wanted prosecutors to be completely independent from figures who had political functions, as the Attorney General clearly did, and those who thought a clear line of accountability through ministers and into Parliament itself was a strength rather than a weakness in the current arrangements. So a system that is, if you like, midway between the American system and the Irish system. In the end, the advocates for the least change won, and Gordon Brown's ambitious reform plans uh, evaporated. The solution on prosecutions was in one sense a compromise, but in another sense it was a considerable defeat for the fans of complete, the supporters of complete independence. The Attorney General uh, and the DPP drew up a protocol to define their relationship. This contained much that was welcome, stressed the importance to public confidence of indive in genuinely independent public prosecutors. It accepted that while the Attorney General would, would retain the right to be consulted on, individual, consulted on individual prosecutions and entitled to offer her advice and the views of her government colleagues on matters of public interest, she would not seek to issue casework directions in the vast majority of cases. In the vast majority of cases, she would indeed withdraw from casework. But there was an exception she would retain a significant rule in prosecutions affecting national security. As you might expect, there was no definition uh, of this much used and, I'm afraid, abused term. The risk, of course, is its notorious elasticity. What is a national security case? In theory, it could include anything from a case relating to terrorism to a case implicating an internationally significant figure in far more trivial crime. Further problem seems to me to be that it's precisely in the most sensitive cases the public needs reassurance about the propriety of prosecutorial decision-making and its freedom from political pressure. And it's difficult to see how this could ever be provided if a key decision-maker in the process was a government minister. If, for example, the decision to abandon the BAE Saudi investigation had followed a direction from Lord Goldsmith, subsequent to his letter from the Prime Minister, the position would probably have been politically unsustainable. In all, all probability, there would have been a major, there was a major scandal anyway. The scandal would have been deeper and broader. 
and the anxiety with which the then Attorney General repeatedly emphasised that the decision was not his, but the independent decision of an independent prosecutor rather makes this point. I had a similar experience when I was DPP and decided to drop the case against a GCHQ employee who'd been accused of leaking classified documents to the press. In his statement to Parliament about this case, the Attorney General spent most of his time stressing that this had been my, de my decision, not his, and that I'd acted entirely free from any outside pressure, which, as it happens, was completely true. The reality is that it's difficult to see how a national security direction of this sort could ever be given without meltdown. It would necessarily follow a disagreement between the Attorney General and the DPP on where the balance of the public interest lay, otherwise there'd be no need for it. A particular risk for the government in this situation would be the probable tendency of the public to prefer the view arrived at by an independent prosecutor to that of any government minister, even the Attorney General's. Well, Patricia broadly recognises the perils of this minefield, saying she doesn't expect that a direction will ever, in fact, have to be given. But if this is right, it's difficult to see any utility in this controversial provision if, realistically, the power is never likely to be used and its existence serves only to dampen public confidence and create widespread cynicism, we might reasonably conclude, we might reasonably conclude that we'd be better off without it. It is, as I've said, very much in the government's interest that the most sensitive casework decisions command public confidence. It's very unlikely that national security direction could ever help to achieve that. So what's the solution to the accountability problem and to the Irish model in our context? Can accountability only be provided by the involvement of a government minister like the Attorney General? Well, I think not. It's worth bearing in mind that prosecutors already provide real accountability both to Parliament and to the public by routes which bypass the Attorney General and the government entirely. For example, the DPP himself is directly accountable to Parliament by statute. He's accountable to the Public Accounts Committee for the efficient running of the prosecution service. He gives evidence before the Public Accounts Committee and is cross-examined by it. He's very frequently summoned before other select committees of Parliament to be questioned about matters of interest to MPs. So I reg regularly went before the Home Affairs Select Committee, the Justice Committee, the Constitutional Committee, Constitutional Affairs Committee and the Joint Committee on Human Rights and so on to be questioned and to give evidence to be questioned and cross-examined about criminal justice issues. In addition, and unlike other senior public figures, the DPP not only has... Um, regular meetings with government ministers, he or she also meets regularly with opposition figures and briefs them about developments in prosecution policy and practice. And of course, again, unlike other senior public officials, the DPP maintains a high public profile, giving statements and interviews to the media. And indeed, on prosecution issues, the press almost invariably approach the DPP's office uh, for a comment rather than the Attorney General's. And I think it would be eminently possible to build on all of this. It would be possible, for example, to give the Justice Select Committee or some other perhaps joint committee established for the purpose a specific role in examining the performance of the DPP and the prosecution service. It would be a simple matter to enhance the direct accountability uh, of the DPP to Parliament. And there's no reason at all why, in conjunction with this, the law officers shouldn't continue to address prosecution uh, issues on the floor of the House. After all, they routinely answer questions about prosecution decisions at the moment they've played no, no role in, often being required to explain decisions they've no personal sympathy with. This is unexceptional and has never caused any difficulty in the past. 
So I think a decision has been made here about power and where power should lie. I don't think this has been a debate about accountability or independence at all. It's been about the unwillingness of the government to give up a, a nuclear option which it wishes to retain to say yes or no, contrary to the view of the DPP, when in extremis it would suit the government to do so. I think it's a very great shame the Prime Minister didn't hold his nerve. I think there was a real opportunity to modernise our constitution in this area, and I think we lost it. I'm sure the prize would have been greater public confidence in the integrity of criminal cases, particularly those in the most sensitive category. And I'll just conclude by saying it will be very interesting to see whether north of the border the Scottish Government um, shows more courage in this area than the United Kingdom managed to muster. Thank you. been treated to a, a wide-ranging lecture, wide-ranging not only in terms of its geography but also in terms of its substance. And like all good communicators, Professor MacDonald has left us with a really good period for questioning. So I um, hope that uh, you're all ready to go now with some questions. So. We do have some microphones um, and there's a gentleman in the middle there. Uh, we have a convention uh, whereby people identify themselves so that our speaker at least knows to whom he's talking. So. Eric Barnett, non-practicing barrister. Who appoints the DPP and do you think it would make the DPP more independent if instead of having a five-year contract he was appointed indefinitely? Um, I, 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 I'll answer the, first, the second bit first. I, I, don't, I think indefinite appointments are not a good idea. <coughs> I think the best way to make, an independent, make a DPP independent is to have a, a, a fixed term appointment which is not renewable. I think renewability is a problem because if you're worried about whether you're going to be reappointed, I think that's something that can, um, can um, perhaps in the wrong circumstances affect your judgment. The problem with indefinite appointments is that if you're running an organisation like the CPS, you, know, you, can't, you cannot have someone doing that for more than three, four, five years at the most because people get fed up with them. I mean, you can't have organizations run by people for you know, 10, 15, 20 years. The DPP uh, is, a, is a civil service commission appointment. That means that the job is advertised. Uh, there is a civil service commission panel which is chaired by the first civil service commissioner. The civil service commissioners are there to see that public appointments, the public appointment procedure is, is fair uh, and properly conducted. Um, when, I, when I applied, the, 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 the panel members were the first civil service commissioner, the permanent secretary at the Home Office, the, the permanent secretary at the Lord Chancellor's Department, as it was at that time, and Lord Justice Old, who was a senior Court of Appeal judge with special expertise in criminal law. The process then is that the panel makes a recommendation to the Attorney General. The Attorney General can either accept the recommendation, in which case the appointment is made, if he wants to reject the recommendation, then the entire competition has to be run again. He can't simply say, I don't want the person you've recommended, I want someone else who applied. So it's, it's a civil service commission appointment. I think one um, reform which might be useful is that I think this is a post which could be included in the new arrangements for some other public appointments, which is to say that the preferred candidate of the Attorney General is required to give evidence before a parliamentary committee before the Attorney General confirms his appointment. I think that's something that should, should take place with this appointment as well. 
when I had a trawl around your, um, your public profile this afternoon, I did come across exactly those names in terms of the people yeah. who interviewed you, and I, I was struck by just how frightening and intimidating it must have been to have put yourself up for that kind of job. So well, they're very, I mean, they're very, I mean, they're obviously, they're very senior officials. David Omond, who was um, permanent secretary of the Home Office, had been director general of GCHQ for many years and was a very senior figure in Whitehall. Um, yeah, they, I mean, it's a, very, it's a, it's a, it's a high-level panel. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Yes, at the back. My name is uh, Chris Coverdale from Make Wars History. Um, I have uh, three questions, but uh, the first one is that about the wars with Iraq and Afghanistan. Between 150,000 and 200,000 war crimes were committed by Britain's armed forces and our political, civil and military leaders whilst you were in office. Yet not one of these was prosecuted. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't accept and the premise of your question. I don't accept there have been 150,000 war crimes committed. Um, well, we have... In Make War's history, we passed to you uh, evidence of crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, murder, conspiracy to murder. Well, I don't want. I'm sorry, I don't want crimes to against. Peace. I don't want to enter into a debate with you about this because there are a lot of people who want to answer questions. I don't accept. I have never seen any evidence that would persuade me that there have been 150,000 war crimes committed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I don't agree with you. But fair enough, um, and. Why haven't you responded to any then, even if there was half a dozen crimes? Uh, so you're, asking, crimes me, you're asking me personally. I know, I'm really trying to find out why you, as DPP, failed to prosecute any of the most serious crimes and atrocities that have ever been committed in this country in relation to the wars with Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't accept the premise of your question. And the fact that, well, point is that we have killed a million people, including 300,000 children, over the past eight years, none of whom had done anything to harm anybody in this country. But that, I'm sorry, that's and not... all of whom... Sorry, I'm sorry, I don't accept the premise of your question. This that is, is under the, the law of England and Wales. It is an offence of genocide. I don't agree with you. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop this now. There, there is a, a fine line uh, between prosecution and persecution. No, I don't... I'm sorry, I mean, I, to, 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 I, mean, I don't want to... Yes, but I, I, to, to be absolutely clear, I do not accept the premise of the question, which could only follow if there was clarity about the legality of the illegality of the war, which, from our point of view, having looked at it, there was not. And therefore, the premise of the question, which is that there have been hundreds of thousands of war crimes, is not one which the lawyers in the counter-terrorism division who looked at it were able to agree with, and therefore a decision was made that those prosecutions would not be mounted. That's the answer to your I'm question. I'm talking about the legality of war. I'm talking about the well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I completely disagree with your analysis. I completely disagree with your analysis that what, is, what has occurred there is a crime of genocide. It, it's just, it, it doesn't bear scrutiny in terms of what the law of genocide is, but I think we've probably taken that far enough. Thank you. Uh, Peter at the back. Peter, mm -hmm. um, Bradley, I'm a, uh, your lecturer here at Kelsey. Um, it's okay. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. Um, the, I was just, you, you referred back to the Queen being prosecuted. Yeah. Because um, that goes to what one of the things about the procedural power, it has a little bit of the sovereign's yeah. power in it, that, that discretion, that yeah. discretion, 
which is about public interest yeah. in the last analysis, is something that belongs to the sovereigns. It has a deeply political character in that respect. You mentioned that the, the DPP has to be, and the prosecutor general has to be accountable to the courts, or is it? Yeah. But as I understand the position, the decision to prosecute isn't reviewable by the courts, as a position of you, because the thing, the process will occur in the criminal courts anyway. Yeah. The decision not to prosecute is theoretically reviewable, but I'm a little bit out of touch on this, but I don't think anyone's ever actually had a remedy on that. Um, so, and that, again, is partly because it must be very difficult to review the, the decision whether a prosecution is in the public interest or not. That's a rather difficult uh, decision to review in its nature, which just brings me back to my first mm. about your position. It just, it's just a doubt, which is that... Um, because of this intrinsically political character, uh, giving the job to the chief prosecutor's job to a minister in the end, and uh, leading the nuclear option with the minister, at least we know that when they withdraw and say, oh, we won't prosecute BNE, we can't even know where we stand. It's a political decision. Uh, and that's very clear. And so someone we can, as an electorate, make that person accountable. Yeah. Whereas, and here's a possibility, and I'm sensitive about this, as in this independence of servant, there's always the possibility, the suspicion, if the servant comes back to Parliament or to a committee and says, well, look, you know, we need to see if it's in public interest. There's a suspicion of something cooked up behind closed doors there, which is slightly more open, at least, where it's a government <coughs> Well, I think, if, I'm, if, if you don't understand that, I think that's the very somewhat cynical analysis, which is, to say that, which is to say that in case there's something going on in the background, and, and there may be some political influence, let's just make it overtly political so we all know where we stand. I, mean, I, can, see, I can see what you're getting at. I don't, I don't agree with that analysis. I think it's far better to try and create a system in, in, in which people can have confidence around the independence, which is to say that you have a, a suitable distance between the prosecutor and anyone who is fulfilling a political function. But nevertheless, there, is, there are appropriate degrees of, uh, of transparency and accountability to Parliament by other mechanisms which, which you could e easily create. I, I'm, also, I'm not sure I agree with what you say about the public interest. Um, I don't think the public interest has got anything to do with the sovereign. The public interest is really the prosecutor acting as a sort of aspect of the public conscience, if you like. The prosecutor has to, has to make all sorts of judgments about what the case represents, what it represents for the victim, what it represents for the defendant, what it represents for society, and then make all sorts of other uh, judgments about particular policies that are enforced at a particular time, and then uh, exercise that discretion. I don't think it's anything to do with the sovereign at all. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's an aspect of the decision-making which belongs solely to the prosecutor, surveyed by people further up the food chain than him, than he is or she is in the, in the, prosecu in the prosecutor's office. So I don't think there's anything, um, I don't think there's anything sovereign-like about that. Reviewability, I mean, you're, you're right that, that um, it, it's, it's, it's almost impossible following the case of Kebeline to judicially review a decision to prosecute, and that's because the courts have held that the place for that to be examined and determined is in the trial. Uh, and there's every opportunity for uh, the other side, the side who feel they shouldn't be prosecuted, to make those arguments in front of the judge. And those arguments can either be there's, in, there's an insufficiency of evidence or the prosecution uh, is contrary to the public interest. Pro decisions not to prosecute are frequently judicially reviewed, and sometimes the prosecution are ordered to go back 
and to make a reassessment. It's, it would be very rare for the, for the administrative court to say, right, you will now prosecute this case. What the administrative court would say is, your decision-making is flawed, you didn't take this into account or that into account, now you go back and reassess the position. And there have been examples of um, prosecutions being brought as a result uh, of JR proceedings. But I, I'm, I, 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 don't, I don't share your, your, your conclusion that because there might be something shady going on, it's better just to make it explicit, admit that it's political, and, and have that all out in the open, because then you're stuck with the fact that these are political judgments. You're acknowledging that, and you're saying that's fine. I, I don't think they should be political judgments. But that's, you know, that's a debate. But th that's the two sides of the debate. Just one follow-up. So in, in all those various considerations, but then go in the Well, let's take, let's take a very clear one that's been in the news a lot, uh, assisted suicide. We had a, when, when I was DPP, we had 98 cases brought, I think it was 98 cases brought to our attention, and we didn't prosecute um, a single one. I'm talking about relatives taking family members or loved ones to, to the clinic. Um, and so, and, and so in some of those cases, there wasn't enough evidence because um, in most of the cases, the bodies were cremated, and so we couldn't establish causation. We couldn't establish what the cause of death had been. But in some cases, uh, the bodies were brought back uh, to the United Kingdom. Daniel James, the young man who was uh, injured in a, in a rugby accident, his body was brought back to the United Kingdom. There was a post-mortem, and he died of massive barbiturate poisoning. Now, there is no doubt at all there was sufficiency of evidence to prosecute that case. Um, but a determination was made that it was contrary to the public interest. Now, you know, you can write down a list of factors, as Keir Starmer has, for or against, but actually that's only part of the story. That's just the skeleton. What's really happening is that there's a sort of uh, categorization of factors and then a kind of gut instinct and all those other things going on. Um, I would rather that form of discretion was being exercised by someone who wasn't a politician, frankly. I'd certainly rather it was being exercised by someone who wasn't a member of the government. And particularly when you start to get to sensitive cases, BAE, cash for honours, I definitely want those cases then, that, that discretion, that public interest discretion being determined by someone who's not a member of the government. Thank you. Oh, Professor Lacey. Thank you. Thank you, first of all, so much for a wonderful lecture and one which have been crafted to address so beautifully both your own title and the series title um, and for speaking so frankly which frankly is relatively rare in this sort of situation and that was exactly what I rather hoped that this uh, series would achieve so so many thanks I'm very fascinated in something that Jill mentioned in the introduction which is how if at all you feel your experience as a defense lawyer affected your experience of and take on this job and one of the reasons I'm interested in that is that of course as a law teacher uh, one of the things we always teach students is we you know to make a really good argument on one side you've of course got to know what the good arguments are on the other side so whichever side you're arguing for you've got to know both sides of the case because that's intellectually completely true but nonetheless if I want to motivate a criminal law student to get into an argument of course what I say to them is 
okay, imagine you're prosecuting or imagine you're defending. <coughs> so, and, and we know that, in fact, as a matter of institutional you know, experience, people do specialise. And so I'd, I'd just love to know how that affected your experience of the job and your attitude to it. it, it this is an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I was... Um, I think there are a number of things at play here. First of all, I really did believe when I, when I, when I did, took this job that prosecutors had very, a very important human rights role in the process. And I know Keir Starmer takes exactly the same view. I, mean, I, used to tell, I used to tell prosecutors in the CPS that they were human rights lawyers and that's how they used to see themselves. So I didn't have any sort of ethical problems about doing it. I thought they could strengthen, you could use prosecutors to strengthen due process. I felt that very strongly, and I thought we could have a prosecuting authority that would, for example, stand against excessive legislation, would stand against 42 days and so on, would, 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 would argue for due process. Um, as to coming as a defence lawyer, I must say my first reaction was that they would, they, the prosecutors were terribly cautious. They weren't prosecuting cases that I thought were eminently prosecutable. I thought they were too soft in some categories of case. I thought they were being far too soft in terrorism cases. I mean, I'd spent a long time representing... Uh, people in serious terrorist cases and I thought they were being they, they, they needed to be much more relentless prosecuting that category of case and I, and I strongly encourage them to do so which is why we set up a specialist division but it was, it was also something about the, the culture that interested me I, shortly after I became DPP I spoke at an event at the Law Society with Mary McAleese who was a you know, president of Ireland and a wonderful lawyer herself and Geoffrey Byman and and various other people, and, they, and it, was a, it was a talk about the Human Rights Act and due process, and so they all spoke, and they were all great defence lawyers, and they all, they all spoke about this due process protection and that, and how wonderful the Human Rights Act was, and then the chairman turned to me and said, now, now we've got, now for, a view from, now for a different view, he said, because I was a prosecutor, and I, I must say, I, I spent the first ten minutes of my speech telling him he was a complete idiot and he didn't, didn't understand the law or what it represents or what the criminal justice system is about. And I was quite keen to challenge that, the idea that it's quite an English thing this. If you go to other jurisdictions, they don't feel that way about prosecutors. We were brought up to think, um, when I was a young law student, we were brought up to think defence lawyers good, prosecutors sort of faceless bad men. You know, the defence lawyer is fighting for truth and justice, the prosecutor is just a kind of beast who wants to lock people up. They don't feel that way in other jurisdictions. Um, in the United States they feel quite differently about that sort of thing, in some parts of the states, I mean, not in all parts. Um, and I was quite keen to challenge that. I mean, the, the, the answer is it brought in enormous insights into what they were doing that they didn't have themselves. And, they, and I also got enormous insights into defending cases that I hadn't had before I became a prosecutor. I think what we wanted as a model was something much more like the states where people move backwards and forwards from the CPS into defence practice and then back and forth. And that's beginning to happen. They're recruiting quite heavily from the bar and people are going off into chambers. This is all around advocacy. The CPS doing its own advocacy means that you're getting people moving in and out and backwards and forwards. And I think that's the, the ideal, actually. Yes, back. Hello, my name is Ian Anderson. I'm also from the Campaign to Make Wars History. Um, I was wondering, um, would it be necessary to prove that what took place in Iraq was in fact genocide in order to, pr to prove that Professor Greenwood committed conduct ancillary to genocide if he created the contrivances of continuing authority 
and preemptive strike in exchange for a cheque for £50,000. And a million people, in fact, died. And my second question is... Thank you. The Queen and also the King of Norway waived their immunity from prosecution under the International Criminal Court Act 2001, which means that, in principle, they could be prosecuted for war crimes. When we sought judicial review of the Crown Prosecution Service decision not to prosecute Blair for invading Iraq, one of the reasons given by uh, the court uh, for refusing our application was that courts would not interfere in the exercise of the prerogative, the royal prerogative, that is, of course. However, this apparently creates a democratic deficit unless you believe that the royal prerogative can be managed. Um, and, of course, the aspect of the royal prerogative which uh, enables us to go to war was delegated to Tony Blair. But, of course, the Queen retained that aspect of the royal prerogative which enables her to get rid of a prime minister, which apparently she did when I was a kid because she, she got rid of the prime minister of Australia. Now, the, in the final analysis, if one day you're able to be persuaded that genocide did intact in fact take place, um, would the failure of the Queen to have sacked Blair enable the prosecution of the Queen under the International Criminal Court Act? It's a question Sorry, it's not a question, by the way. The yeah, um, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a constitutional lawyer and I'm not an international lawyer. I am a criminal lawyer and I'm absolutely satisfied that there has been, in criminal law terms, no genocide in Iraq. It simply doesn't fit whatever you think about the Iraq war, and I think my views on it are, uh, are very well known, what has been occurring in Iraq is not, in criminal law terms, an act of genocide. Without any shadow of doubt whatsoever, there is no genocide in Iraq, so in law. So that's my answer to your question. Well, you'd have to have, you'd have, to have some evidence. Um, uh, of his mens rea, which I don't think for one single moment you could begin to establish in that case. Thank you. Out the front. Hello. Uh, you might want to have the microphone. Uh, the other Naidu visiting from South Africa where I, I teach public administration at the University of Cape Town. I just wanted to ask Sir Ken if the compromise decision uh, to establish a protocol between the AG and, yeah. and the DPP which seemed to uh, re retain quite a bit of discretion for the DPP, certainly around casework, although, uh, as you say, there was the uh, separate issue of national security. Whether that protocol clarified in any way this notion of superintending, uh, the, the AG superintending the DPP, uh, or is that sort of a moot yeah. point in, in I mean, the, the... Yeah, the, the, in fact, the whole purpose of the... Of the um, uh, of the um, protocol was to provide a template for what superintendents amounted to. They didn't try and define the word because I think be I mean it, they, I think they realised that would be impossible. So they didn't say superintendents means and then two or three pithy sentences. What they said is this document represents the relationship between the DPP and the Attorney General. So this document is what superintendents is. And you're absolutely right that. Um, the, the very welcome thing about this document was that it acknowledged that in the vast majority of cases the Attorney General would no longer hold herself out as having a power to direct. Now Lord Goldsmith felt that he had a power to direct in every case. He, he never tried to exercise one and, and, and obviously it wouldn't have been welcome if that had happened. But 
he held out, I mean, he and, and spoke publicly about this, that he had a power to direct. So the, the acknowledgement that that's not the case in the vast majority of cases is, is very welcome. Um, so, there, you know, there are, you can, instantly you can get hold of this um, protocol on the CPS website and on the Attorney General's website. It's a publicly available document. In South Africa, of course, you had a very interesting, um, very interesting recent history with your Director of Public Prosecutions, who I, I met, actually, in Singapore just after he'd been fired. He was given an award in Singapore by the International Association of Prosecutors. <coughs> Peter, all right, you can have another go. <laughs> I'll talk to you again. There was um, someone over here. Sorry, was I? There are, sorry. There's a, another anxiety, and I should say, by the way, that I'm, I'm coming at you with my anxieties about, about the independence uh, of a, of a non-political figure. But I, I completely agree with you about the professionalisation of, yeah. of the prosecution process. Obviously, that's been a great thing. Um, but another anxiety is this. Uh, there's a tendency uh, in the legislature to pass broader and broader... Um, criminal statutes yeah. uh, that are framed in broader and broader terms. So, arguably, the Fraud Act 2006 has criminalised lying with a purpose to make a gain. The Sexual Offences Act 2003 criminalises teenagers kissing each other. Um, uh, we, the Terrorism Act criminalises conspiracies of one, uh, as, yeah. as I believe they're called. Um, and uh, these are very, very broad offences, which leads uh, to... And the government, when pressed... I remember this particularly in the Sexual Offences Act, when pressed on the broadness of these offences in Parliament, said, aha, we can rely on prosecutorial discretion. Uh, now, does that create any particular anxieties in this context? Because it's a, a, a process well noted in the USA, it's even more advanced in the USA, partly because, again, the effect would then be for the Parliament and the executive, the political executive, to pass off the, the legislative decision effectively onto prosecutors. Yeah, this you know, is... And I wondered to what extent that was a particular... I think that's an important point, and, and you're absolutely right that... that um, well, one of the implications of your question is that we've had too much bad criminal uh, legislation in recent years. That's certainly true. You're, you're also right that offences have become broader and broader, and you're also right that on occasions the government has tried to use prosecutorial discretion as a way of getting stuff through Parliament that it wouldn't otherwise get through. For example, uh, incitement... Uh, of religious to religious hatred. I mean, the, the government. Uh, I mean, it was reported to me that backbench Labour MPs who were unhappy about that legislation were being privately reassured by some senior figures. Oh, don't worry, the CPS will never prosecute it because you know that DPP. He's, he's a sort of free speech kind of fanatic. He's not going to. He's not going to prosecute this case. Um, and that's obviously undesirable. We also had that around smacking, where they wanted us to publish a policy in advance which would um, enable the government to outlaw smacking, um, uh, except in the most trivial cases, and we would issue some policy that if you smacked a child and it didn't leave an injury, we'd never prosecute it. Uh, and they, they wanted us to do that so they could get this through Parliament, and we obviously refused to do that and said, you know, if you want a law, you, you better write the law, and then we'll, we'll apply it as we see fit. But I think you're, you're right. I mean, it's often said, isn't it, that um, you can have too much discretion uh, in a legal system, and the point about the legal system, it's supposed to be certain people need to know where they stand, and so you can't give prosecutors too broad a discretion so that people don't know whether they're going to be prosecuted or not for an offence, and if prosecutors are going to exercise discretion uh, in this way, they have to have policies which are available so that people can see and understand what factors they take into account, and that was the, the rationale of the Debbie Purdy case. So, I mean, I, rec I recognise the anxieties that you're expressing, but I don't think they would lead me to conclude that in those circumstances, we can't trust prosecutors to be independent. 
I just don't think they lead to that conclusion. They lead to the conclusion that the prosecuting authority has to be transparent and publicly accountable in some way, but it doesn't have to be accountable through a government minister, is my conclusion. Thank you. Lady at the front. Thank you for your lecture. I'm Rahina Dayan, non-practicing barrister. Um, you described to us that you need both sufficient evidence and um, for it to be in the public interest in order to prosecute something. And I was just wondering, in, in actual practice, what, what particular things are taken into account when deciding what public interest is? Well, there's a document called the Code for Crown, for Crown Prosecutors, which the DPP is required to publish under the statute, which explains how decisions to prosecute are made and what factors are taken into account. The evidential sufficiency test... There's a two-stage test in a decision to prosecute. First of all, the sufficiency test, and that means that the prosecutor has to conclude that, that, a, that a conviction on the evidence that he or she has seen is, is, is more likely than not. Um, that simply means better than 50% chance. So the prosecutor thinks, on the evidence I've got, I think there's a 50, more than a 50% chance of a conviction. Then he or she goes on to the second question. If, 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 if the first stage isn't passed, it doesn't matter how important or serious the case is, it stops there. If the first stage is passed, the prosecutor then goes on to consider whether the prosecution would be in the public interest. And there, if, you, if you go to the Code for Crown Prosecutors, I mean, there are pages of factors that are taken into account. Things like, very obvious things like um, age of the victim, was the crime witnessed by a child, vulnerability of the defendant, age of the defendant, um, you know, whether, whether a prosecution would be disproportionate because, you know, someone's stolen a Mars bar, th those sorts of factors. <coughs> is there any specific um, things that are more than that are public No, I, don't, I, mean, I think it depends on the case. I mean, if, if you're looking at the assisted suicide case, then what was really taken into account uh, is, is the, the motive of the person who's involved and the amount of pressure they, they felt themselves to be under to, to assist their relative in that way. So in another case, it might be, uh, in a shoplifting case, it might be the value of the goods that are stolen, which is the overriding public interest factor. Um, I don't think you could say there's one particular factor that, that would come, come riding to the rescue in every case. It, it just very much is done on a case-by-case -case basis. I, I mean, broadly, my, my observation when, I, when I, used to, I used to sort of test sample cases to see how people were making decisions, but broadly, I thought people were doing it um, quite well. I mean, we, we didn't really have any great directive that we weren't going to prosecute any assisted suicide cases. Just everyone who looked at them thought, we can't prosecute this. It would be absolutely inhuman to prosecute this case. And people just tended to agree about that. Uh, Aria Latsis. Um, Sir McDonald's. I was hoping you could elaborate on what you feel the future relationship is between the CPS and the independent bar. Um, you did tell yeah. us about the history, but as far as I'm aware, a lot of prosecutions at the Crown Court level are instructed by the CPS, but a lot of independent barristers also prosecute. Mm. And do you yeah. feel the CPS is going to do a lot more increasingly in-house? Yeah, the, the relationship between the CPS and the bar has changed quite dramatically over the, the, the last few years um, because the CPS had started prosecuting more and more of its own work um, in the Crown Court um, uh, and has in, indeed in, entirely redesigned the career structure in the CPS so that the whole purpose of a career in the CPS now is to become an advocate. So you join as a Crown Prosecutor, you then become a senior Crown Prosecutor, you then become a Crown Advocate, you then become a senior Crown Advocate, you then become a principal Crown Advocate. So everyone in future will be expected to go to court and to conduct advocacy right up to the most uh, excuse me, senior 
level. So this obviously created a tension with the bar, who weren't happy about the fact that we were um, starting to do this work, because every work done by a CPS advocate is a work not available for the practicing bar. Nevertheless, I came to the conclusion before I took the job that the only way really to develop the CPS and to make it an attractive place to work was for it to get stuck into the business of advocacy, which is what the brightest criminal lawyers want to do. And in fact, when I, when I was appointed, the first, the first quote I gave to the press was, this is what we're going to do. We are going to start doing advocacy. Um, and there was a bit of resistance to start in the CPS, but they very quickly became enthusiastic about it. There was a lot of resistance in the bar. But to his credit, Peter Goldsmith, who, like me, was a barrister, um, supported this strongly, as did Patricia Scotland. They were both very supportive of it. You may know the Attorney General is formerly head of the bar, as well as being chief law officer and all the rest of it. So that, that was a slightly uncomfortable position to be in, to be you know, superintending a prosecuting authority was, that was challenging the bar in this way, but they were very, very supportive. And I'm, it's been an outstanding success for the CPS. It's difficult for the bar, but the bar is one profession, whether you're in private practice, independent practice, or whether you're an employed barrister, and the CPS employs many, many barristers. I mean, the CPS employs several hundred barristers, uh, and it always has done. So I think the way barristers should look at this is that it's another career opportunity. It's not that they're being shut off from briefs in chambers, it's they've got another option. They can go and work in-house. They can have a job with a salary and a pension and a guaranteed source of work. And if they like that and they're good at it and they're good enough, they can go off into private practice and develop their own practice. Perhaps they want to do that. Perhaps they want to stay with the CPS. But these are all just additional options. So I used to say to the bar, you, where you should be looking at this is not that it's a problem, but that it's a, an opportunity opening up for your members. They didn't always accept that argument. <laughs> I've been resisting my kind of temptation to start, start interrogating you myself. I can see there's, a, there's what's been indicated as a small question from the back. So. Uh, Joe Merkins from the law faculty here. Uh, it is a small question, but maybe it invites a complicated answer. You, uh, it's a follow-up, actually, because you just said that um, the reason you didn't prosecute assisted suicide was because, of, because motive was involved, etc. Not just that. There'd be a wealth of reasons involved in, the, in this. Hey, but... Given that, are you then happy with the state um, or with the way that mercy killings are prosecuted? Because these are factually very similar situations, but the outcome is very different. Yeah, well, they're, they're not factually in, the, in, in, in law, unfortunately. I mean, that, that's, and, this, and Keir Starmer has made this point. I mean, I think we've got a major problem with our law of homicide, which urgently needs reforming. One of the key, one of the key problems with the law of homicide is a mandatory life sentence. Now, the Law Commission came up with some very interesting proposals uh, about two or three years ago, which we contributed to, and their, their suggestion was that we should have degrees of murder rather like the Americans. So first-degree murder would be killing with an intention to kill, which actually is what most non-lawyers think murder is. If you, if you tell people who aren't lawyers that you can be convicted of murder even if you didn't intend to kill somebody, they're usually quite surprised by that. And my, my own view is we should have um, uh, first-degree murder, killing with an intention to kill, mandatory life sentence for that, seems to me to be appropriate. The next degree would be uh, killing with an intention to cause serious bodily harm, which at the moment is murder, but I don't think should be. It should be, well, second degree, um, at which uh, sentence would be at large. And you could have a third category, which would involve uh, manslaughter, mercy killing type events. Um, but I think it's going to be quite difficult to create a law which makes mercy killing legal. I think that's quite tricky. And if you think about how you would draft it and what it would look like, I think it's quite tricky. I think it's quite tricky to draft an assisted suicide law. I mean, I 
believe that my own view is that where we are with assisted suicide is about right, which is that there is a strict prohibition, but there is a broad discretion applied. So in other words, the strict prohibition discourages people who might want to do this for the wrong reasons. And we do get the, I'm afraid to say we do get these cases. We do get people who want to talk other people who are depressed or elderly into finishing themselves off. So the strict prohibition <coughs> discourages them, but the broad discretion uh, gives comfort to people who, who feel that they have to behave this way. So I, I don't, I'm, I'm not in favour of changing the law on assisted suicide, and I'm not in favour of legalising mercy killing. I think what we need is much more discretion around sentence. I think it's quite difficult for prosecutors not to prosecute someone who has, by their own hand, killed somebody. One of the first cases I had when I was DPP was an, an elderly man who had smothered his elderly wife in a, ho in a hospital bed. They, he was about 85. She was about 80, and she had this terrible wasting disease. And he, he, he went off to the hospital one day, leaving, leaving a note saying, I can't stand seeing your mum like that anymore for his kids, smothered her, came home, tried to gas himself in the oven, and didn't realise that you can't gas yourself with North Sea gas. So he was found sort of virtually dead with his head in his oven. Now, we didn't, we didn't obviously, I mean, we, we, obviously, one of the things we could have done was prosecute him for murder. In one analysis, he was guilty of that, although I suppose he could have claimed diminished, but we didn't. We, pros we prosecuted him for diminished on the basis of, um, uh, of that you know, state of mind and so on, and he was given a conditional discharge. But not to prosecute him at all when he deliberately smothered her is, I think, is a bit tricky, actually but other people have a different view. Okay, well, I think we've had you on your feet for, frankly, more than long enough. So um, it has been a really, really insightful end to our series on the independence of the law. So thank you very much indeed, Professor McDonald. Really appreciate it. So, thank you. Thank you.